Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better. Start now. Let's go. Hey, you're on air with Ella, and today I am joined by Miss Tilly Harris. Now, many of you will know Tilly from past episodes and every retreat we have ever done. And right now, Tilly is in the very, very professional On Air with Ella studios. Tilly, I am so glad you're here. It's so good to be back. Describe the studio, if you don't mind. I've never actually shared this with people before. Oh, the studios. Well, it's elegantly styled and Ella's dog's on the floor. (laughs) We are sitting on the sofa. We have one microphone that we will be sharing. So thank you in advance for your patience. Tilly, do you mind introducing yourself? Like, tell us who you are and kind of what you do. Yeah, sure. So I work in communications and engagement, basically. I deliver workshops and consulting around interpersonal communications and personal development. So longtime listeners of the show will know that really my thing is what's going on underneath the surface. I basically believe that people can't really change until they understand what's driving them. And also, we haven't talked about this before on the air, but now Tilly and I work together as well outside of our retreat. So do you want to tell them anything about that? Well, yeah. I mean, the retreats are wonderful. I really love them. And actually, I do, I'd like to talk at some point about whether there's more scheduled Ella. But in the corporate world, we've been working a lot around women in leadership, women in the workforce, and also workshops in advanced communications. And then, of course, there's the one-to-one coaching. So today we are taking your questions, but they're on three very specific topics. So let me just share what those are with everybody now. The first question is about work and communication dynamics, and I call it mean boss. <laughs> yeah, I think mean boss is a good name. We'll it. talk about it in a minute. Okay. Well-being. Today we're talking about four shocking things that you do not know about walking and why it is so good for you. And I promise here something new in that one. And then finally, Tilly, we had two listener questions that center around sort of landing on your purpose. And so we'll talk about that one. So let's start with the first question. So I got a voicemail. I don't think I talk about this enough, but people can call me and leave me a voice message. And I always forget to say that. But when they left the message, they said, please just read this. Don't play my voice. So I am going to be the caller. Let's call her Amina. All right. Here's Amina's question. My boss is a great person, but she has a huge job and a lot of stress. She tends to pass this on when she's got a lot on, which is often. I get anxious now when I see her name on my caller ID, and then I pass that anxiety or impatience on to my team because I need something immediately and I'm buying into the stress of it all. How do you set boundaries with the incoming stress and anxiety? And then how do you avoid passing it on to your team? This is so relatable. Oh, I think a lot of listeners will relate to it. But also, there's a level of self-awareness in this question that should be congratulated, actually, because this person is taking responsibility for her own behavior. She does recognize the impact that her employer is having on her. And she's recognized that she's passing that on and she wants to do something about it. Mm So I just want to pause for a minute and go, yay for your self-awareness. So there's two main things that really sort of struck me when I was listening to this one. The first is, is that she says she gets angry 
anxious when she sees the name on the caller ID. And then the other one is about passing it on to her team. So let's just sort of Mm -hmm. break those down briefly. She's got to the stage where she is triggered just by seeing this person's name. When we experience stress to this degree, we feel it in the body. Um, And so often in work, I think we're so up in our heads that we tune out of our physical sense of ourselves. And and it becomes really difficult to emotionally self-regulate because we're sort of denying we feel how we feel. But if we stay in our bodies, we can listen to what it's telling us and we can take it from there. For Amina, you know, she'll either have the heart racing or the nausea, the lightheadedness, the sweaty palms, the shallow breathing. I mean, we all have different ways to respond to psychological threat. Essentially, these are very real bodily responses to things that we're trying not to notice. We try and ignore them because we think we'll be overwhelmed if we acknowledge that this is what's happening. This has implications, I mean, at work, outside of work, basically any any difficult dynamic, right, that we need to deal with. Yeah, go back to the body. Um, because if you don't, it will bring on numbing behaviors, whether, whether that's you know, stuffing yourself with food that you don't actually need to eat or chugging down crazy amounts of coffee or sugary drinks, drinking wine every night, overworking, you know, so that you've no time to feel. Stop judging me. (laughs) Any of those things that essentially distract us and give us a quick lift in the dopamine levels, we will do in order to not feel that our dopamine levels have crashed and that we're feeling frightened and alarmed. Okay, so what you're describing, in my opinion, Till, is basically a cycle that we go in. And I think that a lot of people live in this cycle. And particularly Amina with her question, she's saying, I mean, this is every day for her. So this will have real physical consequences over time. And so to your point, in this case, and we will get to like specifically what should we do. But in this case, I think it's so great that she is seeing this and she's aware that it's a problem because that awareness helps mitigate the tendency for it to like leak out the side somewhere, right? Exactly. This reminds me of the model that you shared in our last Women in Leadership Business Retreat, the drama triangle. Will you share that with us? Yes, absolutely. It comes from something called transactional analysis. Some people call it the Cartman triangle, but most therapists would call it the drama triangle. It's a model for understanding very difficult dynamics between two people, particularly those dynamics that you can't seem to get out of where you're in a loop or a cycle and you keep finding yourself in this kind of repetition of a difficult exchange with another person. Okay, well, I'll put a I'll put a visual, but will you describe this to us? And will you just walk us through it? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a triangle. In one corner, it says persecutor. In another corner, it says victim. And in another corner, it says rescuer. The idea is that we all inhabit all three of these positions. They're kind of scripts, if you like, that we flip between when we're in a difficult exchange and we're not taking responsibility for ourselves. Okay, so persecutor, rescuer, or victim. Yeah, absolutely. So so the idea is that when we feel threatened or we're in conflict, we may default to one of these scripts like persecutor, victim, or rescuer. And we'll flip between them and each one has its own payoff. We chase each other around the triangle, taking these roles in the hope that we can encourage the other person to take one of the other roles at the same time. For example, the persecutor, that's a person that's likely raging, um, criticizing, coming down heavy on somebody. Another place that you might land is the victim. So perhaps if the other person's being a persecutor towards you, you'll go into that I'm hopeless, poor me role. And then the other one is rescuer. And rescuer, you might recognize yourself in if you're a bit of a helpaholic, Ella, you know, people that feel like, oh, give it to me, I'll figure it out. Don't worry, I'll save you, that stuff. Now, no one is wholly one of these things. We all inhabit all three of these scripts on and off 
have in in a conflict. But the more we can understand that and why we are doing what we're doing, the more chance we have of freeing ourselves from that. Well, one of the things that I learned from you that I found super, super interesting is one of the reasons we do this, and what I'm understanding from you is we don't always do this. This is describing an unhealthy drama triangle. But one of the reasons we do this is because there are there are rewards for taking on one of these roles. There are payoffs for each one of them. And I want you to tell us what those are. Okay, yeah. So the persecutor, when you're in persecutor, you feel powerful. You you know, you're the person in charge, you're the person telling people what's what. It's about avoiding vulnerability and feeling powerful. So it often is a position someone will inhabit if they have a horror of feeling vulnerable or powerless, they will flip into persecutor. In victim, the whole point of being in victim is to be rescued. So when we take up victim role, it's because we're hoping that we'll encourage the other person to save us or solve our problems. The reason that we default to victim is because we then don't have to take responsibility for ourselves or solve anything. And then rescuer, rescuer can can masquerade really as a super helpful, kind person. And in many ways, we are when we're a rescuer, but also we're negating our own stuff, you know. So so when we're in rescuer, we can save somebody else and it means we don't have to think about where we are. Instead, we can feel powerful and of value instead of hopeless about something of our own. I've done that before. So the payoff is that you like you get to sort them out and avoid your own stuff. It's actually can be quite distracting, but you still feel useful and powerful. I bet a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, of course. I mean, we all do all of this, Ella. You know, no one's in their best self all the time. And and, and we flip between them. That's the point. Interpersonal dynamics happen between two people. So as someone goes into persecutor, you might slip into victim. But then if victim's not working for you, you might move sideways over into helper or rest. Or if you're married, you might flip into your own persecutor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes, absolutely. Meeting rage for rage is generally I'll out persecute you. Yes. Okay, what I want to do because I'm I'm just gonna hazard a guess in this situation, Amina's, you know, shouty boss is in persecutor mode. And so Amina might slip into victim, or she could slip into helper where she tries to then solve all of Screechy Boss's problems, which would also be detrimental to Amina. So what should we do? Yes. So here's the thing. She absolutely has to do something because if these dynamics go on long enough, we end up needing to exit. We end up needing to quit the job or dump the relationship or whatever it is. But if we can listen to our bodies, feel the level of stress that we're experiencing and decide that we don't want to take up these roles anymore, there are some quite practical things you can do to try and step out of this drama triangle. But one thing that I do get confused about is this takes two, right? So what if the other person doesn't want to change? You can only control you. Yeah, absolutely. So here's what she can do. She can challenge directly. So stepping out of the drama triangles, refusing to slip into those roles, she can insist on a different kind of conversation, not as victim, not as rescuer and not as persecutor, but as a balanced adult person stepping out of that drama. Okay, I got to be honest, that is easier to say than it is to do, right? Yes, it really, really is. And it's like a muscle. The more you do it, the better you get. But essentially, the first point is refuse the counter roles. Like you need to create a communication that allows for the, the, the boss's needs, but also for Amina's own needs. So she has to stay in an adult state, not flip into these, you know, vulnerable or, or excessively powerful states. Okay, wait, what do you mean she has to stay in her adult state? Oh, the thing is, most of these scripts are learned in childhood. We've learned that, you know, if our parent rages at us and we flip to victim, they might be kinder and so on. So quite often we're working on a sort of emotional circuit that started a long time ago. 
I swear we're just like childhood trauma walking around in adult bodies all the time and at work too. Like it's not over just because you walk into a professional environment. This is this is the extraordinary thing, isn't it? Is that at work, we all pretend that we're these robot people that don't have feelings and we can just function when actually we bring exactly the same stuff that we experience at home. Okay, so if I'm Amina, then I personally, this is what I would do. You tell me what you think. I would set a specific time where I can see her, you know, virtually or in person, but I can see her retinas, right? I can eyeball her Mm. and plan for a conversation. And flag it. Like say, I would like Mm. to have a thoughtful conversation with you. Have you got space for that on Friday? Like you've set the tone before you've even walked in the room. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then in the room, so to speak, I state what is happening, meaning not, oh, you're doing this and I feel this and not that, but like state the facts and share the dynamic. Like, hey, boss, when you do this, I want you to know how I respond. And then what I am doing as a leader is passing it on to my team. Okay. It's hard. It's harder than I'm making it sound. Yeah. Right. So, so you say, I can see you're under tremendous pressure. But that is spilling out on me and it's starting to spill out on my team. So I'm wondering if we can come to a different way of communicating so that I don't get anxious and you're you're having more of your needs met too. So essentially, you need to say, I think there's a better way of doing this and try and hold space for that conversation. Okay, I totally agree. Amina absolutely has to talk to the boss here. And in my opinion, I think it's so easy to over talk this. So I'm going to vote for I'm going to cast my vote for fewer better words and not over explaining because what I do when I'm in this situation in some kind of drama triangle, I start slipping into persecutor or mostly to be honest, my default would be rescuer, especially at work and be like, but I can do this and I can do that and I can fix this. And like the best thing you can possibly do is say the thing and stop talking, right? What would, what do you think? Yes. And silence. Leave big gaps for people to think and breathe and respond. Bigger gaps than is normally comfortable in conversation. But if you're used to being in victim with this person, as Amina is, the trick is to become creator, you know, so move towards solutions, ways of working that aren't about being a victim. If you are somebody that's often in persecutor, you're going to have to look at ways to challenge people without making them feel threatened. And if the place that you go to is always helper, then really that's where you need to shift to a more coaching mindset where you're offering people a space to consider their own tools and how they're going to solve their own problems. Okay, so I have a controversial idea. I think you can also, in certain dynamics, you can share the drama triangle and not to accuse somebody else of something, but to say, this is what I am doing. This is how I am responding to you. But you know what? Now that I'm thinking, you should just hire us. We'll come and do it. (laughs) Let us do it. (laughs) Take the pressure off your back. Okay, Amina, good, good luck. We want to hear about this conversation. We want to know what kind of results you get. And yes, we will share this framework with everybody. Okay, keep us posted. I love this question. So we've got one that says, Ella, you used to joke about walking only being for older people and injured people. And now apparently you walk every day. Besides getting outside, do you honestly think it's helping with your fitness levels? I'm trying to get more excited about walking more. But actually, I feel like I should be doing something more than walking. And then I end up doing nothing sometimes. Okay, we could talk all day about how I think I should be doing more and then I <laughs> I end up doing nothing. Yeah, um, I, I'm in that party of one too. <laughs> okay, but instead, let's talk about walking because yeah, I used to think walking was for the elderly and the infirm. I've made that joke a few times. But in the pandemic lockdowns, I started walking every day so that I did not commit murder, which felt like self-care at the time. But mental health and mood aside, and there are obviously very clear benefits that have a great deal of data 
to back them up. I am going to answer this with four new things that you might not know about the surprise benefits of walking. Okay. So get this. According to a study by Harvard Health Publications, walking for two and a half hours a week, and that is 21 minutes a day, all right, 21 minutes a day, has huge, huge benefits. So it can impact things like your blood sugar levels, your insulin sensitivity, your metabolism, weight loss or maintenance or weight stabilization, et cetera. And for me personally, I have a flatter tummy and an easier time stabilizing my weight, you know, like far fewer fluctuations, avoiding the bloat, all those good things, just generally feeling much more in my body when I walk regularly. You know what I mean? I think all listeners know that to be true. That's that's a lived experience, right? And if I'm honest, the periods of my life where I felt most in shape, like fittest, have been periods where I've done an awful lot of walking. Well, the first thing I'll just get on the table is when you walk and in order to benefit from some of the things that we're going to talk about, your form matters. So if you have your phone with you, fine, no problem. But if you're hunched over, if you're bent over, if you're leaning forward in any way, you're actually not doing an enormous amount of good. So just let's get on the table that you want to walk by keeping your core muscles active, like your tummy should be participating in this walk with you. And you want your chest up and your head up and your shoulders should be over your hips. Okay. You're really good at this, but you often tell me off when we're going for our walk and talks because my posture's <laughs> shocking, actually. <laughs> okay. Here are four things you might not know about the impact of walking regularly. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Here we go. Walk after a meal. Scientists have shown that a 15-minute walk after a meal within an hour can reduce blood sugar levels, okay? And multiple studies have shown that just a few minutes of walking after a meal are enough to significantly improve the blood sugar levels compared to, say, sitting, but here's why that matters. Walking requires more active engagement of muscles than standing or sitting, right? That makes sense, but it uses the fuel from the food that you just consumed at a time, like when there's a lot of it circulating in the bloodstream and your muscles soak up some of the excess glucose. And this is normal walking. Like a brisk pace is great, but a walk after dinner helps you metabolize your food better. So in short, if you eat an ice cream cone and then you sit on the sofa, it has a different impact on your body than if you eat an ice cream cone and then you chase dinner with a 15 minute walk. So how soon after eating do we need to go for a walk then? 60 minutes, right, after eating is absolutely optimal, but you still get a benefit up to 90 minutes after a walk. Ah, so there is a window. So someone else has to stack the dishwasher and you go for a walk, right? Okay, I like that on two counts. But also, it does improve the digestive process itself. So it's not just about regulating blood sugar in this case. Walking uses, as I said, your core muscles, your your abs, if your form is correct. And that actually stimulates the GI system. So it speeds digestion and it speeds up your metabolism. But it actually stimulates the GI system. And that means that it speeds the rate at which food is passed through the stomach. So you might find that that morning constitutional has side benefits. Who knew there was so much science in walking? (laughs) Okay, here's the second thing. And I think that this is intuitive, but I want to give you a little data you may not have heard before. Research participants showed an average of 60% increase, a 60% boost in creativity after 15 minutes of walking compared to those who just remained seated in this study. And that was inside, that was on a treadmill. So going outside in nature independently, whether you're moving or not, also stimulates creativity. So walking in nature is an extremely powerful combination. And a thing that personally I 
think we should start adding to our calendars between meetings where and when possible. I know it's not always possible, but I think it can make a material impact. Yeah, absolutely. And and from a more relationship perspective, I'm sure many of your listeners would have experienced this, Ella, but walking when you're having a high conflict conversation or a conversation that risks high conflict can be a really powerful tool. You know, if you have teenagers, for example, you know, a lot of psychotherapists that work with teenagers talk about shoulder to shoulder rather than eye to eye. People don't feel as exposed or threatened when they're not actually looking at the person they're talking to. And our bodies go into sync, our step happens at the same time, and we just unconsciously start becoming a little bit more of a team as we walk along together. Okay, and that's just two out of four, but we're already agreeing that it's time to put a walk on the calendar every day. Okay, number three, walking regulates stress hormones. When you step out into nature particularly, but we will accept inside walking, a walk lowers your levels of cortisol, the stress hormone. So one study that I'm I'm sharing all of this in the show notes that goes without saying, right? But this study found the best results from 20 to 30 minutes a few times a week to lower your baseline levels of cortisol, which can be extremely helpful for people. And you know, and when you're when you're inflamed, when you are in fight or flight all the time, when your cortisol is consistently high, it is extremely difficult to sleep. It is extremely difficult to lose that belly fat that tends to accrue during those times. And walking just 20 to 30 minutes has an, a direct impact on these numbers. I find that amazing. But this study showed that even 10 minutes can suffice if you're crunched for time. 10 minutes still has cortisol lowering results. Yeah, any of your listeners who who are remotely tuned into their bodies will know that a day that you get outside and walk is better than a day you don't. Okay, the last one, brain cognition. So here's a super fun fact. I'm really glad that we're sitting shoulder to shoulder so I can share this difficult news with you. But the hippocampus in the brain plays a major role in memory, in learning and memory, actually. And it starts to shrink in late adulthood. Yeah, but the degree to which that happens isn't determined. Like like a lot of it depends on how you live and what you choose to do. And that's the point because walking can help combat cognitive decline, especially in mature age populations. Like the older you are, the more direct correlation there is there, okay? In a study, they had participants aged 55 to 80 walk a very minimal amount. I mean, it was like 40 minutes a week. And within a year, researchers found an increase in, quote, the size of the anterior hippocampus leading to improvements in spatial memory. And that was 40 minutes a week. Okay, number three. Am I okay? I liked that. Do that. Do <laughs> no, that. I will not do that. Okay. All right. Question three. Actually, okay, this is two questions, but we're going to answer them together because I got a voicemail and an email and I want to share them both. So the voicemail was, thank you for your last episode about when you feel like you're in a rut or a slump. I am in this now. I have friends, but I'm blowing them off. I'm not taking pains with my appearance and I'm generally isolating myself and I feel like I've lost my way. And then I got an email from a beloved listener and she said, she was telling me that she moved with her husband to a new town and I think they're in their early fifties. And she was saying, you know, she's not responsible for children anymore. And, you know, that feeling where I should be happy, but I feel lost. And she said, I feel like I don't know what my purpose is anymore. And it might not look like it at first glance, but I believe these questions have a lot in common. So can I tell you my first response? It's your podcast, Ella. (laughs) Okay. One thing I've realized unequivocally is that our purpose and oftentimes our motivation and fulfillment, you know, that gets us out of bed the next day and the next, that fulfillment 
that fulfillment comes not from, quote, figuring out your purpose, you know, in some existential deep dive, which I'm sorry, the internet will sell that to you. The internet tells you that you're here for a purpose and you're, you spend half your life like trying to figure out what that is and then frustrated that you can't. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. But for me, it's not like the thing I've picked up, at least for myself and put it in my toolkit, is that figuring out your purpose is not from some headline that you eventually land on, but from connection to others. So for me, for both of these listeners, I think human connection, human interaction around something meaningful to them, and now that's the part B, okay, whether it's a hobby or an interest or something creative or silly or professional, I think human connection is both the biggest slump buster there is and like more nuanced, maybe one of the quickest routes to landing on your purpose. And I'm, I've only just discovered this in my own life, to be honest. I don't subscribe to the idea that we have a singular purpose, but that our purpose is to live like the fullest expression of ourselves. So I know that sounds a little, it sounds a little cheesy when I say it, but for me, that's the fullest expression of myself physically, mentally, professionally, personally, socially, spiritually. And I can connect to my purpose and feel it in my body, you know, when I connect with other people in any one of those areas that I just articulated. Does that, does that resonate with you at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when people are wondering about meaning and direction, it always comes back to two things, connection and creativity, because really, that's all there is connection and creativity. They're everything. By connection, what I mean is being with other people in a meaningful way. And that can be, you know, deep work on a project at work, or it can be going for a walk, holding hands with your partner, it can be playing with your kids more, it can be volunteering, it can be coaching football, you know, it really can be anything. It just means being in the world with other people in a way that matters. And it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. Research shows that we are happier, more optimistic, have better mental health, all of that stuff. It just is a matter of phoning a friend or going for a walk. And you know, what's so funny is when you're feeling like this, when you're feeling isolated, or you're feeling like you're in a slump, oftentimes, I think people have the same response, and they self isolate further. And to me, it actually is the hardest thing to do is to make a connection at that point, but invariably the most powerful. What about the creativity, though? I don't consider I don't feel like I'm so creative. Oh, no, no, you've just created, you know, several companies in a podcast. That That's the point, right, Ella? Like creativity doesn't mean an art class. Creativity means what? Well, psychotherapists call it being generative, right? So so the idea, it doesn't matter if you are decorating your bathroom or planting a garden or project planning, or it doesn't matter what you're doing. But if you are taking something that only you, that very specific thing that only you do the way you do it and putting it out in the world, that's where meaning lies. Okay, so I don't have to like paint. <laughs> no, I, but, but you can write a four-line poem or jot down something meaningful in a birthday card. It doesn't matter what you create. It's the fact that you create because that connects you with, well, I mean, it sounds a bit cosmic, but it kind of your own life force, right? Yeah, but I mean, it makes sense. That's what we do. Like, that's why we get so charged up when we do live better retreats, etc. Because we are we are a making connections with people who share something in common. And we're not homogeneous, but we all want to sort of dial it up, right? Like we want to live better. So you're immersed in connection. And then you're creating things like you're generating. I love the word generate. I like that because I can relate to that more, I think, than create. That is my highest and best. I find that really, really helpful. If you are in these specific situations where you have self-isolated, is it that simple? It is that simple. If you are in a slumpella, connect 
and create. You won't feel like doing either of them. And if you can just make yourself do a tiny amount of either of them, you will move the dial. You'll start to feel better. Okay. Well, to me, this begs a question, especially for the woman who moved recently. If you would like an episode on how to make friends as an adult, hit me up because I moved to Washington, D.C. a few years ago and I had to start all over again. And I think that's a big part of isolation is not knowing how to make friends as an adult. So we could do an episode on that. If you're interested, let me know. Yep. And I've got a bunch of things to say about making friends as an adult too. Wait, you have other friends? Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and links at onairella.com. There's no with. It's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. And thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.